0: Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into, about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may, uh, also may see the works you are doing." For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feasts, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but it is he who's, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who speaks, seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances. But judge with right judgment. The grass weathers and the flower fades. But the word of God you may be seated. As we come to God's Word, we need His Spirit to help us, so let us begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the revelation of your Son passed down through the ages, codified in your Word, and that your Spirit still speaks to us through it. Please give us ears to hear today. Illuminate your Word to our hearts. May it have its full work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. To get you up to speed on where we're at in John. This is the beginning of a new scene. We were in John chapter 6 for a few weeks as Jesus had fed the multitudes uh, with five loaves and two fish. And then there was this long discourse about him being the bread of life. And we're told he stays in Galilee for a while, and in the kind of the outside area, not in Judea, because he was, we're told here, the Jews were seeking to kill him. The religious leaders didn't like what Jesus was doing and so he was finding some refuge on the outer edges of this area but we're kind of picking back up on a scene that we had left a while back and that was this scene where uh, on the Sabbath day Jesus was in the temple and he found this lame man who was unable to walk and he was laying there and had been an invalid for 38 years And Jesus not only heals the man on the Sabbath, but also commands him to take up his bed and walk. And it's kind of the first real controversy Jesus gets into in Jerusalem, at least in the way in which it has kind of doubled down on him taking authority that the religious leaders did not like. And so Jesus has stayed away. Uh, The Feast of Booths is happening now at this time, we're told in this passage. Uh, So it's likely that since the multitudes and the the feeding and all the things that we just got through in John chapter 6, about six months has passed. He's continued to teach in the synagogues and continued to likely do many more signs if you 're not familiar with what the Feast of Booths is, uh, this is one of the three main feasts of the of the people of Israel, especially at this time uh, and it's it 's this time where everybody comes and lives in a tent in Jerusalem. Uh, people from as far out as possible, even those who live outside of Israel you know out in the d- dispersed areas, uh, would come in and they would build these Uh, little huts or tents or what what have you, and they would live in them for eight days. People that even lived in Jerusalem would go up onto the top of their houses and they would build these kind of hut things and they would also live in them for eight days. It was a reminder of their sojourning in the wilderness when they lived in tents. And it was also an imagery of living in the presence of God, The, the geographical location that jerusalem was center to the life and worship of his people because that's where his presence dwelt and so they all came and lived As close as possible to the temple and so this would have been a time when lots of people would have been in jerusalem Probably the most popular feast of all of them And so they would have been there not only would they have just come for the day They would have been there for eight days And it kind of sets up our scene here. There's this controversy now in the background. Jesus has stayed away, and yet now the big feast is coming. Our passage today touches on a lot of different things, and we'll go through those things. But the main idea that Jesus really gets to is at the end. And he exhorts the people listening to him, and he exhorts us to judge with right judgment. To judge with right judgment. The people in this passage are seeking to judge who Jesus is based on appearances. We too, uh, we, we make our judgments on limited information based on appearances. But Jesus is calling us to a different type of judgment. And so... This is where we want to go with our text. We can even just do a quick cursory uh, overview here. Think about the things that people are saying about Jesus by mere appearances. We're told he's a good man. Some people think he's a good man. He seems to be a good man, judging by appearances. Of course, those on the other side. No, he's leading the people astray. Judgment upon appearance. How does this man have learning How is he able to teach if he's never studied? they are looking at this appearance of a man who has the ability to do something he shouldn't be able to do. They are judging with their eyes, with their experiences. But Jesus says they are not judging with right judgment. We'll just go through our text here kind of in a systematic way and... At the end, hopefully give some points of application. So beginning in verse 1, we talked about Jesus not wanting to go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus' conflict with the Jews is becoming more severe as John is bringing us through this narrative. It's becoming more pointed. Jesus knows uh, that his engagement, his public ministry, especially in Jerusalem, is going to heighten those tensions. But the Feast of the Booths is at hand. And and interesting here, verse 3, we get this exhortation from his brothers. Now, these are no doubt Jesus's uh, actual brothers that grew up in the same household as Jesus. These aren't referring to his his disciples. John doesn't describe them that way. And they exhort Jesus to do this. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one is, works in secret if he is to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you wanted to be prominent at this time, you had to be in Jerusalem. You are just an obscure person over here, Jesus. Why don't you go to Jerusalem? That's where real leaders are made. That's where everybody is. I mean, the Feast of Booths is here. Everybody is in Jerusalem. The whole world is here. Why don't you go there and show yourselves? This would have been the way to become prominent. It would have been the way to become the mega church pastor that Jesus so often does not do. Jerusalem is the center of religious life. It's the center of worship. It's the center of teaching for the people of Israel. I kind of wonder if his brothers are saying this a little bit sarcastically or a little bit of a jab because we're told in verse 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. They don't understand who he is, what he's doing. They're blinded, no doubt, by their relationship to him. They certainly have seen the signs. I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up in the same house that Jesus did. And yet they don't truly understand him. They, they want to exhort him to do the things that any other leader would do. Jesus responds to them in verse 6 by saying, My time's not yet come. Your time is always here. Jesus really spoke about this back in chapter 6 and some of the earlier passages in John, that he is here only to do the will of the Father. And so Jesus is restrained from acting, except in the Father's timing and will. He says, My time is not yet come. He's not able to just freely go whenever he would want. The Father has specific time and plan for everything Jesus does. But he says, your time is always here. You are free to go. You're part of that world over there. They've not yet believed in him, and so they are operating in a different sphere. He says, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testified that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. Jesus categorizes his brothers as those whom the world won't hate. When we hear, see this, work, this idea of world, Jesus isn't talking about the entire, you know, global seven continent world. Jesus is talking about all of the people, everybody that's There in Jerusalem. Indeed, it could have the broader application of those outside of Jerusalem, but they cannot hate his brothers because they're part of the system. They don't really believe in Jesus. And just as the religious leaders hated him, they shouldn't expect the same hate because they don't belong to him. And they hate Christ because... He testifies that their works are evil. Jesus is always going for the deepest rooted sins in his adversaries, calling out their hypocrisy, and they hate him for it. So after this, he remains in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking at this for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said he's leading the people astray. And yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus has no doubt been viewed and seen and interacted with tens of thousands of people. And he's the buzz of the town. And people don't know what to make of him. We have this scene where they're wondering why he's not there. We're, you might be tempted to see the words of Jesus back there that he's not going to go, uh, and then he actually goes as maybe he lied. I want to assure you that's not what happened here. Uh, the way that we kind of translate things can, can often give us some false impressions, but it is the case that Jesus did not go with his brothers immediately. He was not going to go yet. And part of the reason he was not going to go yet was because of all of this buzz, all of the conflict, all of the things that are leading up ultimately to Jesus's death. It's all building. The people don't know what to make of it. There's a fear of these Jewish leaders, these rulers in Jerusalem. And so people are unwilling to speak openly about it. You know, it's kind of like, what do you think about Jesus? It's kind of like, uh, you know, think of, We're in a political cycle now. You don't really want to talk too openly about it. What do you think of this guy? Because you wouldn't want to accidentally be overheard, perhaps. But about the middle of the feast, so remember, eight-day feast, about the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. And he begins teaching in the temple. And they marvel, saying, how does this man have learning when he has never studied? So Jesus shows up and we're told at least before the middle of the feast. He shows up maybe a day late, maybe whenever it was enough time had passed. And I wonder if part of the reason why he doesn't show up at the beginning and we're told he shows up privately and not publicly is to avoid the very thing that tried to happen to him back in chapter six. If you remember when Jesus fed the 20,000 people with all of this bread and fish, they tried to make him a king. And later on, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, ultimately leading up to his arrest and death, there's this triumphal entry, you might be familiar with it, you know, where everybody throws down their coats and has these palm branches and says, Hosanna, this is his triumphal entry, here's our king. Jesus doesn't show up in that public way, he's avoiding that type of scenario, instead comes a little late, but he does show up and begins to teach. he teaches this, my teaching is not my own, but it is he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. There's this practice in rabbinical tradition, the rabbis uh, would always appeal to a higher authority. There's, there's a long history of the writings of the rabbis of Israel. You can still find them to this day and read them for yourselves. I imagine they are still writing them. And there is this continual practice of appealing to something higher than yourself or something that came before not coming in your own authority, but coming in the authority of, well, this highly revered rabbi, certainly Moses or Abraham, all of these kind of figures, drawing back specifically in this historic authoritative line was very important in the rabbinic tradition. And so Jesus is coming, and he's kind of taking that form here. He's saying, uh, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And Jesus is appealing, ultimately, to the highest possible authority. Just like the prophets who would have come and said, thus saith the Lord. And you better listen. Jesus is saying, I am coming from the one who sent me. My Father who is in heaven who has sent me. I don't speak on my own authority. I don't seek my own glory, but only the glory of the one who sent me. And then he gets into this real debate that has been happening since he left Jerusalem. This real debate about the Sabbath and his healing of this man and whether or not that was okay. He says, has not Moses given you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered him, you have a demon who is seeking to kill me, kill you. Just a few comments here. They think Jesus is fanatical. He's paranoid, likely. Some of these people think he's lost his mind. And in some ways, it's probably true that they don't understand the religious leaders' plans at this point. Although Jesus has and knows all things. But Jesus goes on to say, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Jesus healed this one man. That's what this is all about. This one work was healing this one man in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the Sabbath, and telling him to take up his bed and walk. This is what has most angered the religious leaders. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. The fathers meaning Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob. Um... Abraham, the first one to get the sign of circumcision, right? So this predates even Moses, okay? So you got, you have this right that you're supposed to follow and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a whole, man's whole body Well, so it's the same idea of precedent and authority that's taking place here. As, as the Jewish people are seeking to be faithful to God's law, there are things that are obviously going to rub up against each other, circumstances that are going to happen. And one of these circumstances is that all of the male children of Israel, when they're born, on the eighth day, they're supposed to be circumcised. Well, so one-eighth of all of the children, that's going to land on the Sabbath day. And so what are we going to do? Should we delay a day and violate the law by doing it on the ninth day? Because it would be a work to do something like that, at least in one sense. But no, in order to uphold the law of Moses, in order to uphold all of the things that transcended it, Abraham came long before Moses ever showed up. Indeed, this must be allowable as a work of necessity. This must be included to uphold all of God's law, including the things that predate, the things that are supersede our current time. The rite of circumcision uh, took precedent on the Sabbath because it came before. Circumcision is considered at this time, there was a, a phrase, it's, it's a perfecting act. It was a perfecting act. That meaning uh, it, it took somebody from a state of imperfection in and into perfection it, it, it marked the people of God as being included in the covenant it was one of the things that was required and so it was a perfecting act and therefore allowable on the Sabbath and Jesus is saying his healing is rooted in a higher precedent than even God's perfecting act of circumcision he has made a man's whole body well They're judging him for healing a man on the Sabbath, but they make an exception over here for circumcision. And Jesus is saying, my act is just like this. And actually, it's far greater than this. And the works I'm doing are not just works from Abraham and the things set down, but from God himself. And yet you are angry. You judge by appearances. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with just judgment. Jesus is taking these men to task. He is, in some ways, the great debater here. He is taking their own logic and using it to show them he's not violated anything. In fact, the thing he is doing is great and to be celebrated. course that is not going to be the case that they are convinced by his argumentation and instead it continues to enrage them they probably feel like their credibility is being threatened looking foolish before all of the people this passage is a bit difficult for us to think about how it applies okay so Jesus talks about this he defends himself he he comes. Feast of Booths is here. There's there's a lot going on, but we don't really have these controversies. At least not these ones. We, you know, should you circumcise somebody on that? That's that's so far removed from our minds. We don't worship in a specific location. All of the things that are happening here are are pretty foreign to our context. But I think this whole passage for us highlights this idea of right judgment in a way that can be very helpful for us. See, if we all hold to preconceived judgments about who God is, about who Jesus is, it can blind us to his actions and his words. One of my favorite verses is from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. It says this, There is a a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This seems like the right thing to do. Judging by all outward appearances, this seems right. My own judgment, my own calculations, seems like this is what I should do, but ultimately, that path will lead to death. It highlights for us our limited ability to judge fully all of the things in our lives, all of the ways in which God is working. We can convince ourselves that we are right about things, and it can blind us to true paths of life. We think about this passage, and we see some of the the ways in which the people are not understanding, not judging correctly. It sounds somewhat like our culture. Think about the broader uh, you know, conversation about Jesus and scholarship and the news, whatever, what have you. Some might esteem Jesus as a good man. He was a good teacher. Certainly he existed. He lived in Nazareth. You know? and we talked last week about Thomas Jefferson and his cobbled together Bible, the, moral teaching, the teachings and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? He was a good man. Of course, there are others who would deny him outright, like these people. No, he's deceiving the people. People who follow the teachings of Jesus are deceived. But the reality is, when we judge Jesus through any other lens, besides the working of God's Spirit and his people, we will always come to the wrong conclusion. When we think about this this interaction with his brothers, They're blinded to him because they see him through the lens of being his brother. How could they not believe in him? They literally spent their entire lives with him. Their mom is the lady who gave birth to him, who the angel showed up to. She knows the deal. but the lens of the family has skewed their view of Jesus. The crowds were blinded to him because they viewed him through a a variety of understandings of what the Messiah should be like, must be like. He's supposed to come from this place, or he, he should have done that. They're blinded because of their preconceived notions. The Jewish leaders particularly are blinded because he does not fit their mold, he does not support their agenda. He challenges their errors. And the claims he makes make them very uncomfortable. The lens has blinded them to hearing who Jesus is. We may not see Jesus as our brother, literal brother. We didn't grow up in his house. And we may not even come to church with any understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to be like, who he is now. We don't even know what the word Messiah means. We know it's a concert around Christmas time, maybe. But we all bring our own ideas, our own lenses through which we view who God is. Our preconceived ideas of what He should be like. We might be viewed to uh, be, be tempted to view Him as an ally of our causes, or our success, our family. political party God if Jesus was here he would totally be on my side on every argument I've ever made in my entire life right that's a way in which we've distorted our lens of who Jesus is we might be troubled by our view of fairness God wouldn't be like that a loving God wouldn't do that Have you ever heard this one? I can't believe in a God that would be like that. If God's like that, I won't even believe in him. And it's worse when it reaches down into our sin. That's where we get most blinded to who Jesus is, to what God's revealed about himself. This doesn't often happen very consciously. We don't often think this way uh, up front. We wouldn't necessarily say these things, but at least implicitly in the back subconscious mind, we act and live this way. God doesn't really care when I do this. We build a culture in our churches where, you know, as long as we are self-sufficient individuals, relatively successful, we get married, we have a few kids, our kids don't go too wild— We give the right amount of money. You know, I have it going on. But God doesn't really care about all of this stuff that is written down. I can excuse away the things that are difficult. Conveniently, Jesus has shown up and he's done away with all of the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Only God can judge me. I'm sure it's a popular tattoo. Uh, oftentimes that's said in the context of somebody trying to call them out for sin in their life. Hey, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. And the assumption in this rebuttal is that, well, God's not going to judge me in the way that you're intimating He will. But nothing could be further from the truth. What's implied by the person who says only God can judge me is that God's judgments are somehow hidden, that he has not revealed himself. All of these things are part of the way in which sin has blinded us towards the gospel. Romans chapter one speaks of this. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by who they by who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. In their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In our sin, when you and I sin, we want to suppress the truth. That's what's happened here. Jesus is talking about how the world hated him. The religious leaders hate him because he calls their works evil. By nature, we want to suppress the truth. We don't want to know the truth, and so we'll excuse it away. We'll blind ourselves to it. But Jesus gets to the heart of the issue back in verse 17. He says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If anyone's will is to do God's will, And this is the great division of the people who are in the world and the people who belong to Jesus. Jesus' indictment here is that their will isn't to do God's will, and that's why they can't understand. If you remember back in the last chapter, he talked about how the Father must draw people to him, that the Father is the one who teaches people to come to Jesus if God has not renewed our wills, if God is not at work in the deepest part of our hearts, changing our wills to be like His, then we can't hear Jesus. But those of us who God is drawing in, those of us who His Spirit is renewing, as He is coming not to just change our thoughts and our actions, but our very heart, our will, our desire. then we'll know whether or not this teaching is from God. And so we see this idea and we think, oh, well, you have to be perfectly doing God's will. And I want to assure you that none of us do that. We are all self-seeking sinful people. We all suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We all have division in our motivations. We all simultaneously confess with our mouth our allegiance to Christ and then refuse to obey what he says. It's the war of the flesh and the spirit. Well, then how shall we live? Why does this matter? Why, what's our only hope here? Well, our only hope is found in the Father working through the Spirit to draw us to the Son. Perhaps we find ourselves being far off, being unable to hear. Perhaps when we're convicted with God's Word, we, we want to suppress it well, we're in good company. Think about Peter here, the the chief apostle, if you will, denies Jesus three times at the most critical moment when he had confessed that he wouldn't do that. And Thomas doubts to believe in Jesus unless he saw him for himself and put his hand in his side and his finger in his hand and Or maybe we have loved ones who we feel are far off. Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. Nicodemus never believed in him in chapter 3. The apostle Paul was the greatest persecutor of the church at the time. And yet we see all of these people. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus' brothers become part of the church. That they eventually come to believe. And Nicodemus is the man who eventually comes and takes the physical body of Jesus from the cross. And of course, we all know the story of the Apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church, who is, in a moment, miraculously changed. And then becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Perhaps the most fruitful ministry in the history of the church. How is it possible? Where do we go? Where is our hope? It must be sought from the very source that God would do this work in us, that the Father would draw us, that he would give us the Spirit, that he would give them the Spirit. If our hope is in our own faithfulness, our own ability to judge right and wrong, our own, you know, appearances of what we see, if you think about this shift, it's actually the idea of moving from seeing ourselves as the judge to seeing ourselves as being judged. The posture of those who have come into God's kingdom is one of great humility, great submission. Think about there's this this imagery of the, uh, the tax collector uh, in, the, in the temple praying and the Pharisee and the Pharisee is he's thanking God for how great he is. Lord, thank you for giving me all my success. I mean, it's not unlike us. Lord, thank you for all the things we give. Thank you for all of the things we can do. Thank you for the gifts you've given to me. Thank you for my family. Thank you that I've not fallen into these sins. Those aren't necessarily bad prayers. But the one who went home justified his prayer as God have mercy on me, a sinner. He wasn't pleading a case. He wasn't praising his name. He knew his place before the judge. When sides are drawn, uh, here in Jerusalem and in the days ahead as Jesus begins to minister further and get more pointed in his conflict people are either 100% submitted to Christ and in his ministry and ultimately will pay dearly for belonging to him or they're still the judge and they're left out When we view ourselves as those who have been judged, we find ourselves in great need. But ultimately, this is what Jesus, all ministry, his whole ministry, his whole life, all comes to culminate to give us the true answer. Jesus does not relax the law. He does not violate the Sabbath. He does not change any of the requirements that God has for his people. In fact, it often seems that he makes them more difficult because he shows us the depth of them. Our response should be like the man in Mark chapter 9 who is seeking to have Jesus heal his son. He says, if you believe, the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And that is what the confession of the Christian faith is all about. We believe not because we have made the, the right judgment, because all appearance says this is of course the thing we should do. We believe because God's Spirit has brought us to a place we would never bring ourselves. We believe because we see ourselves as the ones being judged, and we see our great need, and we see that Jesus is the only one that can do anything about it. The one who took upon himself our judgment. Who reversed the entire idea of judgment completely, giving us his perfect righteousness taking our sin, taking our death and giving us his life. May we judge with right judgment, seeing ourselves in the story correctly. May we cry out to Christ, confessing that we believe and yet we need help in our unbelief. May we find our hope in the Father working through the Spirit to bring us to his Son. In Christ's name we pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the great judge who knows all things. We thank you that we are not left in our hypocrisy, but as those who are judged before you, we have a great advocate. We have an answer. We have a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for Christ who allows us to draw near, to be forgiven, to be counted among his brothers. In his name we pray. Amen.